Good morning, Bonjour, campers. Good morning, campers. Aujourd'hui, on va parler seulement en français. Appuyez sur le set. Go on, do your bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's my whole bit. Pour la français, appuyez sur le set. Okay. <laughs> Et ce soir, on va se mêler de la vie des autres. <laughs> oh god it's like that nightmare where i'm back in school and i have a test and i'm not wearing pants are you wearing pants listen it's an audio medium the, the uh, <laughs> can decide whatever they want those little freaks. damn it sarah the people need to know <laughs> yes i am wearing yoga pants very fancy very I'm wearing neon green shorts Ooh la la C'est très chic. <laughs> Lunch today will be roast chicken. Well, I already said my last bit. I couldn't tell my French isn't good enough. <laughs> so put on sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into Amélie. Mariska Hargate, Sarah. Mariska Hargitay, Sam. I'm your camp counselor, Sam. I won't be doing the rest of this in French. <laughs> An ex-pro wrestler in training and current drag wrestler manager. And I'm camp counselor, Sarah, an impossibly twee little lady. And we are here to ask, is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp. We are not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer, and in this case today, French subgenre. The one French word in the sentence. French. French. <laughs> yes, so today we're talking. Oh God, we're going to be fun today. Can you pass me the creme French? <laughs> <laughs> Today we're talking about Amelie, but Sam, I wanted to play a little game. Oh no! My chair suddenly straps are around me. I'm stuck in this chair and a bear trap is around my, my knees. <laughs> your knees? A bear trap is around your knees? Yes, uh, not around my face. My face is my bread and butter, man. <laughs> Okay, so we've had a couple people ask us what exactly camp means, and while we could say just listen to the podcast losers, um, I don't <laughs> think that tends to get you more listeners. So I thought that we would play a little game, Rapid Fire Is It Camp? I have a list of several topics, I'm going to just throw them over to you, and you're going to tell me yes or no. Are you ready? Too bad. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Just yes or no? Yes. Yes. Uh, Christmas. Yes. Blue jeans. No. Channing Tatum. No. Ooh, the Eiffel Tower. Yes. Wacky wavy inflatable arm tube men. No. Capri Suns. Yes. Yeah. No. Commercial air travel. 
No. Painted nails. Yes. Painted toenails. No. Transformers. No. Bears, comma, real. Yes. Bears, comma, Teddy. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> so that's our question. <laughs> that, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> How many topics did you want me to cover? we got to leave something for future episodes if we choose to do this again. <laughs> so so you're just, you're just going to come up with a list of things and I'm going to be the arbiter and decide... <laughs> Is this camp? Well, you know, it's, it's a wide remit that we've given ourselves. If we spend a single episode on every single one of those items, we're going to be here forever. You know what? Fair, fair. I think it's fun to take these sort of wide ranging concepts so that, you know, the normies try to get a better idea of what we're about. Yes, any straight people listening going like, huh. But why are fingernails camp, but toenails aren't camp? It's because they're on your toes. Ew. Yeah. You ever seen toenails? Gross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Amelie! Amelie! Sam, tell me about your background with Amelie. Well, uh, it came out 2001, 2002. It was in that weird cusp area where in France it was released earlier and then later on in America because Americans suddenly went, oh, a film from a foreign land that we can enjoy. Great. And I was living in the Middle East at the time, so I think we actually got it a little earlier than America did, Mm -hmm. purely based upon, like, it's... It was a very expat-heavy country we're in, and so we got a lot of foreign films anyway. Mm-hmm. And Well, I mean, everything's kind of foreign there. Um, yeah. I did not see it at the time because I was 14, mm-hmm. and so my tastes hadn't developed to a point of, oh, actual taste, right? <laughs> I was still in that weird zone of, <clears throat> I want to see some adult films, but I also want to see all of these cool kids' films. You are arguably still in that phase. Uh, yeah, but now I'm more discerning about it, where I don't yes. look at you know, something and go, oh, yeah, that looks dope, like a Transformers movie. If another Transformers movie comes out, I don't go, cool. I go, oh, dear God, when will this end? Yeah. You know that thing where you're going to the movies too often, so you see the same trailer over and over and over again? You're like, oh, my God, I have to sit through five minutes of this fucking commercial? hmm Yeah, no, not happening. So I didn't see Amelie until first year university. I oh, think it would show. Time to see it. Oh yeah, because I I love the first year film students who are suddenly shown this wide variety of films because they're no longer being swayed by their peer group as to what's good and what's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so suddenly you get all of these eighteen year olds who have had pretty shitty opinions up until now suddenly seeing a wide 
birth of all kinds of new and different and exciting movies. And apparently they just love them all. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe I've never seen Silence of the Lambs before. All right, granted, I love Silence of the Lambs. It's one of my top 10 movies. It's fucking great. But yeah, I saw Amélie there. And I was just, at the time, I was kind of blown away because... Americans don't do cinematography like this. <laughs> I, I, looking back at it when I watched it the other day, I was kind of shocked by the cinematography because I remember the colors being so vivid, but I didn't realize just like how of its time it was in terms of the color grading. Oh yeah, this very dingy green, yellow, orange, brown palette that it has going through it. Mm-hmm. It's it's very, like, my brain was just like, hey, Matrix. I'm like, yes, this was the time of the Matrix. Thank you, brain. Absolutely. Uh, it reminds me a lot of music videos of the time, where it's like this hyper-saturated color. So mm-hmm. I, was, I was thinking about that, particularly, um, who's the guy who directed uh, The Fall? Oh, um, Tarsum Singh. Tarsum Singh. So Tarsum Singh really does this a lot, especially in the fall. Um, he also did the music video for R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, which has the same sort of thing. Like all of the people's skins kind of glow golden and then they're set against like these really ivy greens and uh, bold pale blues and things like that. Um, so I was, I was asking, like, is there a word for this term? And my friend Warren, who has helped us with production on the podcast before, um, said, yeah, it's probably to do with the fact that people were able to digitally color grade around that time. So if you think of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This is the first movie that they did where it, the entire thing was digitally color graded to look sepia. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it started in like music videos and ads first, where they're like, we can just ramp up the contrast and make everything so much brighter a color and make the darks darker and have this huge contrast. Let's do it for everything. Yeah, and it's it's never like, okay, let's let's put our feet into the water and test things out and and push a little here and there. It's always, oh, the knob goes up to ten. Can I make eleven? Exactly. I remember watching the um, special features on this episode, on this movie, and there are scenes, so for example, where she's in her kitchen, or the scene where she's cutting up the letters to create a new letter for her landlady, and there's this blue lamp in the background, which actually doesn't exist, it's just CGI, because the director decided later on, I want a pop of bright blue in this picture, let's just oh, wow. put the lamp in there, yeah. I mean, everything else is really red and green. Yeah, it it really lends itself to this idea that with film now we can manipulate in post, right? That one of the jokes I keep using on set whenever we're doing stuff is, "eh, let's fix it in post." But I'll say that about anything that, (laughs) and even including things that cannot be fixed in post. lighting or sound (laughs) or you know basic construction principles there's no floor we'll fix it in post 
Well, we had an issue on Star Trek after Star Trek Discovery season one, where the the bridge of the Discovery was starting to slump in the middle. And it was <laughs> that kind is of such in. a Star Trek bridge sort of issue. It's been sixty <laughs> years, and they still can't make these sets look realistic. No shade to you, Sam, but I appreciate every inch of that set, Sarah. Every <laughs> inch, and you come here, and you insult. <laughs> Um, they they just hadn't put enough stuff underneath it to keep it up, and you know I made a joke of while we're tearing it apart. I'm like, why couldn't we have just fixed this in post? Right? You have Saru leaning on a 45 degree angle, just like <laughs> just make it Fred Astaire walking on the ceiling. Yeah, easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, up and down are just concepts that we've arbitrarily given things. Absolutely. Fixing it in post. But the the lamp thing is is a pretty good segue into the stuff that I researched for this episode. Hmm? Hmm? Look at me. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about magical realism. So magical realism, I don't know a definition of it. I just think of like... Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Wow, you you got one of the names I wrote down. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's like the um, sort of one of the touchstones of the genre. But I don't know that I could necessarily say this is magical realism. So I'll go through magical realism. And mm -hmm. at the end of it, hopefully you get a little bit better of a grasp of what it is to be able to say, oh, now I can see it. I can see it in a lot of things that we take in. And same for you, the audience. I'm pointing at the audience now mm -hmm. and saying, maybe there's things you've watched, read, uh, seen in terms of art that is magical realism, but you've never quite put your finger on it, right? So the term first appeared way back when, almost 100 years ago, actually, in 1925. As Don't the do German... that to me. That was 80 years ago. <laughs> I know. I know. Time. Ugh. But yeah. it was a German term, uh, magischer realismus. I'm not going to try a German accent for that. <laughs> this, is, this is the best you got. Which was used by the art critic Franz Roh to refer to a style known at the time as new objectivity, which was an alternate to expressionism. This okay, is a lot so of so everything's very, very real? Kind of. So the, the, the key aspects of the, these paintings was that they were hyper-detailed, right? It wasn't just like, here's a desk, Here's a bunch of stuff on the desk. Look at this pot of fruit. It was, wow, that is near photographic rendering of this pot of fruit on this desk, yada, yada, yada. But magical realism takes that realism one step further by adding in an element of the fantastic. It's not like Alice in Wonderland. It's just that uh, no. magical, it's sort of reaching a fingertip in. Yeah, and not commenting upon it, just saying that it's there, it's part of this world, it's incredible, it's fantastical, and it's living next to the mundane, 
but perfectly normally. So let's say that desk with the pot of fruit on top of it, and then peeking out from the behind the pot of fruit is a tiny gnome. <laughs> right? But the gnome is also incredibly realistically drawn. Mm, yes. So it's not high fantasy, right? It's not wizards and sorcerers and, and liches, bzz, bzz, your Dungeons and Dragons party doing stuff. That's fantasy. What magical realism tries to do is that it's trying to depict the real world, Earth, you know, right now or an approximation of now, whether it was five years ago, 20, 100 years ago. But there's a fantastic part to it, right? We're trying to stay as true to the rules of the world as we can, but then adding to it slightly. It, it, it's, it's often linked very closely with surrealism. People think that the two are the same thing, but they're not because what happens is in surrealism, uh, it looks at bizarre and impossible things through abstract and s- interpreted psychological reality. So you think of Dali, mm-hmm. right? Perfect example of surrealism. Here's a landscape perfect blue sky, look at all these melty clocks on this giant square and a tree and a woman who's kind of turned inside out and there's a tulip coming from her. None of that is based in reality, right? Like, sure, a landscape with a blue sky is based in reality, but the melty clocks, the the woman turning inside out, all that kind of stuff, it's not real. It doesn't come from anywhere. And on top of it, Dali's art, while beautiful, isn't realistic, right? Mm-hmm. But when you look at uh, magical reality, it's the fantastic that's been folded into the mundane world using the actual existence of things. So uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, an example in art so people can get a, a visual sense of it. Did you ever read those, like, squashed fairy books when you were little? Yes, Lady Cottington's squat-pressed fairy book. Yeah, where it's presented just like any other um, uh, sort of biological flower, except it it happens to be very realistic drawings of fairies. Yes, okay, so so that, that, that could be seen as a good example of it, because the fairies are anatomically detailed they've got little breasts and and you can see their fingers and palms but they're all squished and squashed across the the pages pan's labyrinth is the other one i think of pan's labyrinth is an excellent example of magical realism in film because it is the real world it is the the spanish civil war and it's just that this one girl is interacting with the folklore Right, she's she's having a magical adventure of her own, and it it's never questioned by her. It's never questioned by the audience, and it's happening simultaneously to the events of the Spanish Civil War. Yes. Okay. Now, whether or not a person watching it decides, like, oh, I think she was making the whole thing up, or oh, I definitely think that the magical world is real. That's not part of it. That's not the it's the question. But it's not the story. Exactly. The The magical realism is just that strange and unusual things are happening at the same time that the rest of the world 
is continuing apace. And it has to be our world, right? So J.R. Tolkien. Talk... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like Lord of the Rings, that's just fantasy. And J.R.R. Tolkien can throw in as much detail as he wants to describing the world of Middle-earth and the practices of the people and the backgrounds and the histories and yada, 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 yada. But it's just fantasy. There's no magical realism to it because it's not part of our world. And to draw his contemporaries and friends, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe may start in a perfectly mundane world. And the movies actually... Uh, draw a bigger comparison to Fan's Labyrinth because they pay more attention to the war that was going on at the time. Um, but Lucy discovering the wardrobe is magical realism. Everything after that, pure fantasy. That's not magical realism at all. Yeah, if if there if there had been more interaction with the the 1940s London, mm-hmm. yeah, it definitely would have been. Like this, this is magical realism. So it, it starts in a world of magical realism and then moves quickly into fantasy, right? Uh, I would say probably the, the magician's nephew is closer to magical realism there because... See, I was just thinking that, but I wasn't sure if you'd read The Magician's Nephew because that has a lot more bouncing back and forth between the two worlds. Yeah, exactly. So, and it has people trying to sort of institute a London-style order onto Narnia. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work. No. <laughs> no. It ends badly. All of the Nardia books kind of end badly. Especially at the very end, where they're all dead. But it's fine. You like it, right? Children, you love it when all the heroes of your book die. Yeah. Don't worry. They've lived on in heaven. I mean, Narnia. Exactly. With Jesus. I mean, Aslan. <laughs> Originally, this term was used just in the art world, right? But uh, it was very quickly adopted into literature. And one of the places that really, like, clinged on to this was uh, Latin America. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The love of magical realism in Latin American countries and their art and their literature is immense. They have created some of the uh, most highly regarded works of magical realism, right? If, Uh, If any areas of the world have like specific fictional genres attached to them, Latin America is very much the the center of magical realism in our world. So we've already touched on Del Toro and Garcia Marquez. I think um, I've I've only ever seen his name written down. Jorge Luis Borges is another writer uh, who's influential here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got a couple people written down. So like you said, Gabriel Garcia uh, Marquez, who did 100 Years of Solitude. Uh, Laura Esquivel, who did Like Water for Chocolate. Oh, I've read that, yes. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a really good example that a lot of people would actually know, uh, very mainstream author, Neil Gaiman, is Magical Realism. Oh, he loves himself some Magical Realism. Neverwhere is a perfect example of this, right? It's, it's the world 
as we know it. And then there's a sub world just below it that we can touch, we can access and it interacts with us in all kinds of ways. But, you know, it's, it's other, it's, it's strange and incredible and fantastical. And that's where you start to see the crossover between magical realism and urban fantasy too, which uh, loses some of the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not exactly whimsy, um, but it's the much more realistic <clears throat> magical realism. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> urban fantasy is much closer to fantasy itself than it is to magical realism because in urban fantasy, the author tries to explain the rules of the world, right? Like oh, this magic point, is yeah. this magic exists because of this, right? Oh, the vampires invaded, and that's why we have a night and a day shift. Or oh, fairy magic works like this, and uh, everybody's born with a psychic power. Or yada 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 yada, right? There, there's explanation for why the world is like our own, but fantastical. Whereas in magical realism, there's no attempt at explanation. You just take it for fact that this is the world, that some people have powers, that magic is a real construct. So <clears throat> there are key elements to magical realism, elements that more so crop up in, in the literature aspects than it does in the art aspects. Uh, first one being fantastical elements. Straightforward we get it. You know, it's the inclusion of fables, folk tales, and myths, and treating them as real things that are part of uh, history. Right? That it just mm -hmm. is. Uh, it's it's very much in the same way that you know you never watch uh, a TV show and question like why are all these people blonde, but these mm -hmm. people have brown hair. People are just blonde and brown hair. So in this case, some people just have magical powers mm -hmm. or, or fairies exist or tigers roam the streets. <laughs> right. Uh, the second facet being uh, a real world setting. Again, has to be the world that we know, that we understand. So you'll, you get things written in London, right? New York, Mexico City, Tokyo, right? these, these actual places, or even just small towns off to the side everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so next one is authorial reticence. Okay. So uh, let me guess what this means. Basically, yeah. an unwillingness to explain. Perfect. Okay. That's exactly what it is, right? That there, there is obviously the author has created this fantastical world, but they don't need to explain it. You should just be able to, as an audience, as a reader, sit back and go, yeah, sure. Everybody in this world has wings. Fine. Yeah. George R. R. Martin is great at building this sort of in this sort of thing in. He doesn't write magical realism, but he's great at that's doing that sort of world building where nobody tells you this is the religion, but through everybody's mm -hmm. dialogue and references, you realize, Oh, this is their religion. That sort of thing. Exactly. Right. So that's, that's a really good example of uh, author reticence in other media. Right. So, so something like that, where the world building is 
so rich, it's built into language and dialogue and action, as opposed to now I'm just going to take five paragraphs to explain how the really cool walking robots work. Do, 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 oh, do, do. I see you've also read Isaac Asimov. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it's all about the seamless integration of the fantasy and the mundane to the point where you're not supposed to question it. Mm-hmm. So the next aspect being plenitude In this, it's about the detail. The worlds, the events, the people are constantly being described in great detail, not just physically, but also emotionally and historically. So you can see them. Yes, you get to know who this person is, what they like, what they hate, uh, where they've been, why are they important, why aren't they important. Right? You get to know this building. How many floors does it have? Why are there that many floors? What does it do? Where did it go? The sound of the cat's bowl on the cobblestones. The sound of stories being told to children. Perfect. Right? Like We don't need to know that stuff. But the, the plenitude of detail and description fleshes this world out in a way that just showing it doesn't necessarily come across right and every time i i watch the movie with people who haven't seen it before they laugh at the bit about this is what the air stewardess likes this is what the cat likes because at that point it feels like are we really going to explain what everyone likes um but it's still just such a delightful detail it doesn't feel like it's just put in there to mock the story itself no uh, and and that's that's it right it's Still, everything is seamless. Everything is integrated for a purpose. Whether that purpose is like, this will be important later, or if it's just, this is the world, right? She likes things, he likes things, they like things, this cat likes things. And why would I treat the cat any different than the protagonist? And at the same time, it feels very much like a sort of writerly instinct. It feels like something Roald Dahl would sneak into you as an aside. Yes, Roald Dahl is also a great example of magical realism. That oh, like these wonderful each, I suppose, is magical realism. Yeah, it's these wonderful things that happen, and the world goes along with it because that's just what happens. Sometimes a giant peach lands on the Empire State Building. And it is it is amazing and it's fantastic, but at the same time, it doesn't have people going, holy shit, giant peach, my world is shattered. I, I have never considered Roald Dahl through this lens before, and now I'm seeing it. Matilda is magical realism, Charlie and the mm-hmm. Chocolate Factory is magical realism. Oh, this yep. is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, next point being hybridity, <laughs> which took me a while to figure out how to say hybridity. The, in essence, the the blending of multiple planes of concepts of reality. So it's the urban and the rural. It's Western and indigenous. It's the past and the present. It's above, so above, so below. It's the self versus others this idea that we're not working in one singular plane. It's not just an urban fantasy. It's, well, 
uh, like Neverwhere is a great example. Like there's the urban world and then there's this world below the urban world, right? Mm-hmm. Or this movie plays with time in a similar way. We flash back and forward. Or sometimes we'll spend a couple minutes in exactly one time at different places. Mm-hmm. You know, what does this time mean to this person, but also this person on the other side of the city? Right. It's it's the hybridization of events, of feelings, of locales, of concepts. This is such a Uh, lovely romantic way of describing Amelie that really helps explain a lot of its appeal. I'd never thought of it like this before. Yeah. And after going through all this background information, I was suddenly like making clicks in my head of, oh, this other thing has aspects of magical realism. And just like, just like with anything, a property doesn't have to tick all of these boxes off to say it's 100% magical realism. Some people may look at a property and go, you know what, that's not really magical realism to me. And other people may see it and go, that, that is definitely magical realism. It's subjective just as much as anything else, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The next point is metafiction. Fiction about fiction or fiction that breaks the fourth wall. Exactly, right? Uh, If you're going to make something that blends folklore and myth and fairy tales into the world naturally, you, you are making fiction about fiction, right? You're involving the audience themselves because oftentimes they have to have that prior knowledge of, I know Little Red Riding Hood. I understand how this story goes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a really, really good example then is uh, the Thursday Next series. Love me some Thursday Next. We're going to cover Thursday Next eventually. Yeah, we will get to it. But Thursday Next is a kind of magical realism. While still very grounded in our world, but accepting that there are greater powers that are usually new to Thursday as well. And it's, but it's magical realism to like the nth degree, (laughs) where almost nothing is mundane in their world. And because nothing's mundane, the fantastic is the mundane. Absolutely. To give you guys an idea, I think uh, there's a spinoff series, which is the Three Bears series. And I believe in the second one, the main character discovers that he is, in fact, a fictional character. And this is very upsetting to him. And the story just continues on. Yeah, and and oddly enough, that brings us to the next point, which is awareness of mystery. So magical realism is hyper-aware that there is mystery in the world and that this, this mysterious element connects people and things together. So in the case of Amelie, all of these characters are, are connected tangentially, and they may not know each other, but they're all connected through her and through her she sees a greater mystery that she can solve that she can use bits and pieces of other people's lives to to blend together to solve whatever the problem is now granted amelie isn't a big like oh no there's a murderer on the loose it's it's i just want to help people's lives out 
but still that mystery there is an awareness of it again in the thursday next novels it's always about the mystery the 12 mysteries she needs to solve each and every book (laughs) (laughs) those books are dense except for one there's always one mystery per book that she never solves and you never get the answers to because fuck you that's why because jasper ford said i'm going fucking dance you have to read all of them 12 times to discover oh by the way i never included a chapter 13 chapter 13 is in any of them. every single novel and the fact that book number is it number five or number six doesn't exist anymore yeah book number six exists in the protagonist world but it doesn't exist in our world and it's great because they keep making callbacks to it. And yeah. you're just like, but what, what is the Samuel Peepus, uh, Peeps affair? What exactly. happened? Uh, uh, so, he plays with us. <laughs> the big final point to magical realism before we get to the film is political critique. All right? And it can be small, it can be large, but there is an implicit criticism of society and particularly the elite happening in in these works of art absolutely i don't think that um pan's labyrinth would be uh as effective a story as it is if it was just this girl going through these completely mundane adventures during the war it's through the contrast of this that you realize just how awful her stepfather is yeah if you just want the girl's adventures watch labyrinth yeah (laughs) that's it or alice in wonderland yeah, where a girl goes on a journey of self-discovery and she comes out better and having grown from it. Great, awesome. But magical realism does specifically look at the world around and it centers itself on marginalized people or a marginalized protagonist, whether it's politically, sexually, um, culturally, whatever. And it's them working to undo the injustices set upon them and their people by the system. This makes magical realist texts subversive texts because they are battling against established norms. Now, I would argue, looking back 20 years later, this is something that Amelie fails at. Yeah. Granted, not everything ages the, uh, the same way, right? We can't, we can't do that. And again, you don't have to check off every single bullet point on this list to say this is definitively magical realism. Mm -hmm. But Amelie gets pretty close to the entire thing. Yes, absolutely. So just some famous examples of other magical realist creators. Uh, I did say Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Laura Esquivel, Salman Rushdie. Mm, yes. Toni Morrison. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Safran Foer, who wrote Everything is Illuminated. That makes sense. Uh, Terry Gilliam. Oh, absolutely. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Edits. Right. Time Bandits is my first thought, but yeah, Fear and Loathing yeah. too. And uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right? You you watch a Miyazaki film and 
it is the real world. It is, I mean, granted, sometimes slightly more fantastical real world. All right. And it could be just a seaside town in, to- uh, in Japan somewhere. It doesn't have to be anywhere specific, but just somewhere. And there's a magical thing happening. And the effort that they put into depicting, you know, the leaves on the trees rustling in the wind, they put the exact same work into Kiki's room or something. Yeah, it's, it is, I mean, Kiki's delivery service is a really great example of this because she's a witch. She performs deliveries. Nobody else in that town has magical powers as far as we're aware and but they're never taken aback by the fact that she is a witch that she's flying around she's delivering parcels it's not a holy shit what the <laughs> fuck is going on right there's never a holy shit moment in a miyazaki movie of abject horror at the bizarre thing unfolding in front of them it's just oh okay all right yeah, there's no third act twist where the Baker betrays her and the townspeople burn Kiki at the stake. Exactly. Right? It's, <laughs> it's just about a girl growing up and delivering parcels. Mm-hmm. Very so, mundane yeah. slice of life. It's, yeah. So that's kind of magical realism in a nutshell. I'm sure we could go on for days just listing examples of this is magical realism, that's magical realism. And I'm, I'm certain we will find other magical realist films and texts as we continue the show. Absolutely. Because as you say, it has a much wider reach than I was thinking when I just think magical realism. It's in so many different types of stories. Yeah. And I mean, this is the thing with genre it's fluid. It's never any one static thing. Like some of the, the most well-loved films in existence don't adhere to a single genre. The Matrix is an action movie and it's a sci-fi movie with a tinge of horror mixed into it. Absolutely. Right, uh, And it's also a romance and it's also a coming-of-age story. Mm-hmm. And it's also a huge metaphor for uh, discovering that you're transgender. Yeah, a queer narrative. Yeah. Right? Uh, Ghostbusters, right? It's a comedy. It's a horror. It's a bit of an action movie. You know, where, where do you put Ghostbusters into the neatly defined blockbuster video aisles? Exactly. Ghostbusters is basically a buddy. Except there's more than two of them. And they aren't cops. But if you take that away, that's what it is. It's this story of these guys coming together through work. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're sitting there going, genres define specific boxes. It's like, (laughs) loser. No, it's not. I mean, Ghostbusters, (laughs) that becomes magical realism. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually first watched well, no, I first watched Emily um, on my own as a teenager. But then, same as you, I don't think we were in the same film 1000 course, but I did watch it in film 1000. And we watched it as part of our section on genre and the evolving romantic comedy genre. Okay. 
Yeah. So we watched uh, The Tree, which is not a good uh, romantic comedy from the 30s, a genre that I normally really love and will go back to over and over. It's like my comfort food movies. Um, and then we watched Annie Hall and then we watched Amelie. Yeah, I think that was a very good upward trajectory for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why can't we just watch Bringing a Baby or the Philadelphia Story? And meanwhile, everyone around me is like engineering students trying to get their one arts credit. Yeah. Yeah. Eh, we make do. Exactly. Exactly. So shall we talk about the plot of Emily such as there is? Yeah. Yeah. Dive into it. Okay, it feels weird to discuss the plot of Amelie because it's so sort of vignette and it'll return to themes and scenes that aren't explained for like an hour later. Um, you can watch this movie the whole first time and not realize that, for example, Amelie has stolen the gnome and what she's done with it. Um, I feel like this could be a real Star Wars minute of a movie where you could just discuss every single scene and every single moment in so much depth. Because you can't just say, you know, these are the things that Amelie likes as described by the narrator. No, it's you watch her finger plunging into that bag of lentils and you watch her cracking the creme brulee with the spoon and everything mm. like that. Oh, I felt that. Every time I see the creme brulee part, I'm just like, I feel that. And I love that. I had never had creme brulee at that point, And now every time I have creme brulee, I crack it exactly that same way. Mm. It's practically pudding. I don't like pudding. But I love creme brulee because it makes me feel like Amelie cracking it with a spoon. <laughs> okay. So if we want to go through the plot as it is, um, Amelie is born at the same time all of these other lovely things are happening like an old man rubs out the phone number of a friend who died and glasses dance on a tablecloth and that sort of thing um no that's the moment that she's conceived um and her parents are sort of withdrawn her mother is neurotic and her father isn't very warm so every time her father who is a doctor touches her to give her her checkup her heart beats faster because she wants to be hugged by her dad so as a result he thinks that she has a heart condition and can't go to school with other children and she goes up incredibly lonely oh, oh my heart already i know she's just this cute little girl with like adorable little tiny bangs and she looks just like mara wilson and matilda it's too much she looks then, like she looks like my my three year old nephew. Oh, <laughs> and I was just like, oh no, I see this child. And and in this scene, uh, this montage, this is where we first really start to get the magical realism of the world. Because yeah, like you said, uh, a man erases a phone number from his book because that person has died. Uh, some glasses are dancing on a table just due to some wind passing by. And then you also see her as an incredibly lonely child giving a checkup to a fictional alligator friend. And it's the same way she starts to uh, come up with her own ideas of how the world works. Like, this is another one that stuck in my head for years and years, that somebody in a coma is just getting all of their sleep at once. 
And once they wake up, they'll be able to stay up all the time. I still think about that. I love that idea so much. Or that uh, LPs are made like crates. It's, it's just such a whimsical way of looking at the world. I, I, like, the writer nailed how do kids look at the world, all these weird things. Like, if you knew nothing outside of what your parents tell you, this Absolutely. is the kind of stuff you see. I, so, great example, really great example. I'm sure, A, everybody has at some point asked a grandfather or parent, what was it like before color was invented? Because you see all the <laughs> black and white photos, and you think, oh, the world was black and white up until a point. But... Other example, I remember being a kid and telling my mom, uh, mommy, when you get pregnant, in order to make the baby, you have to eat food that's in the shape of all the baby's bits. So you have to eat little <laughs> for its fingers and you have to eat oh gosh, uh, so perfectly formed sausages for its arms and the right size of like a whole apple or a small fruit in order to get its head and i was convinced that's how you make a baby you have to eat because babies are grown in tummies and what goes into a tummy food <laughs> oh when i was little i read the word eavesdropping in a book and i never actually heard that word before so i separated it into its component parts and i thought to listen in on a story there must be somebody hanging outside the window and it was uh... very scary to me <laughs> so I imagine whenever somebody was listening in on a conversation, they were hanging on outside the window from the eaves. And and this is the precocious nature of a child that sometimes you're given information and not given the explanation of the information. So you have to come up with your own logical steps from that point. And you see it constantly in this film. So it's a lovely way to explain how Amelie sort of stays this way as she grows up because she doesn't have it sort of beaten out of her in school the way most of us have it beaten out of us. She just remains this kind of weird homeschooly kind of girl. Talk about yourself. I am full of whimsy. <laughs> you are full of whimsy. But I'm thinking of, uh, of Nino getting bullied and how, so at the same time they describe uh, when Amelie's so lonely and wants a friend, Nino has too many friends because they're all beating him up and things like that. He just wants <laughs> friends, just like Amelie does five miles away. Yeah, it's oh, so cute, so sweet. Oh my gosh. But this, is, this is one of the problems of the movie, watching it 20 years later. I'm like, huh, this movie about Paris, one of the biggest, most multicultural cities Ooh, no, in the entire not, world. Paris. It's not Paris. It's Montmartre. Montmartre is in Paris. No, that's like saying, oh, it's set in Scarborough. Scarborough's basically in Toronto. <laughs> no, it's Listen, not. Moulin Rouge is in Montmartre. Uh, Van Gogh and Cezanne and Monet, they were all from Montmartre. Don't tell me that it wasn't Parisienne. Yeah, but we also call Scarborough part of the GTA, right? <laughs> okay, so she's technically from Mama. <laughs> I think she's from Paris. <laughs> and yes, the French title even does specifically say that she's from Mama. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to sit on this pedantic horse all day. <laughs> yes, so they're five miles apart in Walmart. Um, <laughs> and she goes off and she uh, goes to Walmart away from her father's house when she's an adult. And she's still just kind of lonely all the time. She tries to make friends. She tries to make boyfriends. The shot of her saying she tried boyfriends, but it didn't really work out. Another one of those images that has just stuck with me. Her trying fact, not to laugh. She's, she's not laughing in the middle of coitus just because he's so serious about it. And she's just like, it's sex. Why are you so serious? Absolutely. And then we get into the things that she's been able to find joy and pleasure in in her life, like plunging her hand into sacks of grain and skipping stones on the canal. Oh, oh, just the description of everybody's likes and dislikes are played so well because they're not like, this is Sarah. Sarah loves Doctor Who. It's, it's not as simple as that. It's, it's something that almost feels unique to you as an experience as opposed to just a thing that you like, right? So like It's something that you would know that's very personal about you, but not necessarily important. So, for example, one of the waitresses, Gina, hates the term fruit of the womb, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, Sam, me, mm-hmm. <laughs> I enjoy uh, very thundery and rainy storms and just having it beat across the, uh, the glass of my bedroom. But at the same time, another sort of similar detail to you is you hate voyeurism. You'll watch all sorts of horror stuff, but you hate that. Oh, yeah, it, it creeps me out. And, and just even if it's not in horror movies, if it's just in regular stuff where a character is being a creepy voyeuristic perv, but it's being treated as, ah, ha, ha, boys will be boys. No, hate it. Can't stand it. Absolutely. Um, so we learn about Amelie's life working at the Dumoulin and in her tiny little perfect flat. Oh, my God. It's so, oh, so beautiful. It's so twee. Oh, yes. Do we want to talk about the Amelie to Zoe Deschanel pipeline? <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like it was built just to constant Because Amelie is almost, almost a manic pixie dream girl. Absolutely. Uh, she's... But because the movie is just about her and her wants and her needs and not about some fuck boy thinking he can save her, she doesn't fall into the hole of, oh, she's not like other girls. I mean, clearly, Amelie is not like other girls, but she chooses to be that way and she has agency. And she enjoys that about about herself. And it's very similar to me. They're very, very similar characters. And that's part of what draws them to each other. Neither needs to be fixed or be reawoken to the whimsy in life. They're both looking at the same things and trying to solve the same mysteries that are all around them. Which is, oh, yeah, it's, it's the romance of this movie. I, I cannot 
with this romance. I, I've said before, I love romance. I love romantic movies. This movie tears me in half at the end. Oh no! Dis- discuss it once we get to the end. Okay. 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 Um, <laughs> so anyway, sort of the inciting incident of this movie is this is a period piece, and. The death of Lady Diana as orchestrated by the royal family is the exciting incident. Oh, no. I mean, you know, period piece as in it was set four years ahead of the the year that it was set in, uh, filmed in. Period Um, piece. So she hears about the death of Lady Diana as she is one night in her apartment. This is the thing that really gets me. And sort of the thing you watch it when you're like 16 or 18, you're like, that's what I'm going to do. I have my own place. She's getting ready for bed in her negligee, dabbing perfume behind her ears from an old fashioned perfume bottle. And I'm like, yes, that's definitely what I look like when I go to sleep. It's definitely not hair in a ponytail and wearing an oversized t-shirt, whatever. It's like Momata from the viewpoint of Amelie has been frozen in, in, you know, like just nostalgia carbonite, right? Everything looks like it did back in the sixties and fifties and forties, but it hasn't aged. Yes. And I do think that this is one of the flaws is that um, when we see this multicultural city, it's very, very white. Jean-Pierre Genet, the director, has defended this and said, well, Lucien and that's a super white movie. Yeah. It, that That is one of the unfortunate drawbacks of it. I mean, if it was filmed nowadays, hopefully somebody would have the forethought to go in and be like, we need a little bit more in this. Yes, this is one of the things that Emily in Paris was criticized for, for showing a very white view of Paris. Um, and even that has more characters of color than Amelie does. You're, you're pronouncing the, the TV show wrong. It's and oh, no yes. joke. Oh, my God. This is what Netflix put out. They said, oh, it's pronounced Emily en Paris because it rhymes. Uh. They're trolls. They're trolling us all. They knew what they were doing. Um, <laughs> sorry, where was I? Oh, yes, the deaf lady Diana. Um, so Amelie drops the stopper to her perfume bottle. It rolls against the wall and pops out a tiny little hidden space behind a tile. And she pulls it out, and it's the memento box of a little boy who lived in her apartment in the 50s. There's like a pack of cards and a little model cyclist from the Tour de France. and it's basically a little boy's treasures. And she says, I'm going to find who owned this and give it back to him. And if it works, then I'm going to keep doing this sort of thing. Yeah, uh, it's, she- it's altruistic. Uh, and I mean, you can get into the argument as to whether or not, is she doing it for the benefit of them? Or is she doing it because she likes the feeling of having done something nice for other people? Right, it's, oh, it's absolutely so... the, the part where she stares at the TV and it describes how she died a saintly life and crowds of people mourn as they fill the streets <laughs> to watch her funeral cortege. Listen, let he who is among sin cast the first stone. 
Uh, she's definitely doing it to feel good. But at the same time, the the whimsy and the wonder that she brings to these people's lives is undoubted by the movie. Yeah, it it really is. This is part of the magical realism of it, of just go with it. Let's get to the end of this film, see where it takes you. Exactly. You're walking by a payphone and it's ringing. You'd better pick up that phone. Because it could be the love of your life or a, a mysterious benefactor. Exactly. So, you know, she has to go to all these different people to try to figure out who lived in her flat in the 50s. Eventually, she finds out that it is a man called Dominique Bretodeau. Not Bretodeau. Not Bretodeau. Bretodeau. Um, but it, it's important along the way, like, it's not just getting to the guy, it's the steps that we take to get to the guy, because you meet all of these characters she interacts with. You meet uh, the landlady whose husband left her for another woman and then died mysteriously shortly thereafter. You meet the man next door whose bones are as brittle as glass and can't leave his apartment. Right? Uh, you meet the grocer who's a, a horrible human being, especially to his, uh, his assistant who Lucien. is just trying his, Lucien, who's just trying his best. Right? And so along the way, you're not just getting the clues to how do we solve the puzzle? But we're also getting, ah, oh, this is this person and this is what they do. And, you know, a little bit of their bizarre backstory, right? And in a very sneaky way, it is forcing Amelie into these friendships that she wanted so badly. Like her friendship, I can't remember the name of the man who, uh, who paints a Renoir a year, uh, Raymond Dufayel. Her friendship with Dufayel becomes one of the greatest friendships of the movie. Mm -hmm. And through her, he eventually learns to kind of break out of his own box, right? Because he's sort of a cranky old man, and he's teaching Lucien how to paint. Whoa! My uncle just snuck up on me. Oh, my God. (laughs) 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 Creepy, creepy. Um... Howdy. <laughs> uh, yes, he becomes kinder to Lucienne and that sort of thing. And he sees yeah. more joy in the world. So it's it's that interconnectedness, that mystery of the world, that everyone is kind of connected in their own way, and that nothing we do is isolated from other people. So she eventually gets the tin back to the man who owned it before um and it's everything in this could be really creepy and we're going to discuss that later on when she goes into Colignon's apartment um Mm. because if it was me I might be kind of scared about answering a telephone and then discovering in the phone booth a tin of collectibles from my youth but instead in him it creates this sort of joie de vivre and remembrance and nostalgia um it's almost exactly actually the storyline from home alone with the old man who's become distant from his children and says you know what maybe i should call them back whatever we argued about wasn't important yeah it's 
I mean, you can examine any of these stories and be like, "Woo, this is a little, uh, it's a little bit creepy," but because of the constraints of the movie, because of the the way it's shot and the way that we're framed and the way things move, you just go, you know what? There is whimsy and goodness in the world, and things like this are are magical. So she decides because this one good deed worked out she's going to start doing it more often so for example her father lives all alone he's retired uh Amelie's mother is dead after somebody jumped off Notre Dame and fell on top of her killing her instantly oh my gosh (laughs) so her father won't leave his home even though he really does want to travel and that sort of thing so Amelie steals his garden gnome gives him to a friend of hers for an airline and her father starts was this a trope before this movie i feel like it might have been i i definitely know i read a news story about this kind of thing before this film came out and i wonder if this is sort of like oh I'm going to take this story that I read about it and kind of fold it into my, my uh, screenplay just to add that extra layer of whimsy to it. You know, like more real life grounding that yes, people have heard of this thing that happened. Right. But I I think one of the important parts about the film, this as well is that, you know, that Amelie steals the gnome, but you don't know how the gnome ends up traveling the world until the very end of the film yes emily's father just keeps getting polaroids in the mail of the gnome next to the empire state building or red square or something like that and it's just driving him crazy in this way that he can't figure out why the gnome which he cemented into his shrine for his wife in the garden um, (laughs) can be doing this and sending him messages yeah it's it's to him he's taking it very very seriously and amelie is just like oh he's whimsy enjoy your whimsy photos yes she's casually sneaking into the conversation so where's that garden gnome you told me about last time Mm -hmm. um and at the same time she decides that she's going to start a romance between two of the regulars at the cafe where she works, which is another aspect that has not aged well. No, and and to the movie's credit, it doesn't end it well either. No. So to set the scene for those who haven't seen the movie or haven't seen it in a long time, there's a tobacconist named Georgette um, who works in the cafe. There is also a regular at the cafe named Joseph, who used to date another waitress named Gina. So Joseph goes there every day to spy on Gina, and he takes notes on what she's doing because he's certain that she's laughing orgasmically to attract another man when she laughs at somebody's joke. That sort of thing. Yeah, he's a big... Level 1,000. Big old creeper. Uh, So Amelie decides that she's going to make both Georgette 
the tobacconist and a hypochondriac. And Joseph happy by telling them both in this sort of much ado about nothing sort of way. Oh, she secretly has a huge crush on you. That's why she's always sneezing. She's trying to get your attention. And he secretly has a huge crush on you. That's why he sits there so he can watch you all day long and things like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of a not just Amelie, you know, making lives happier, but she's also fixing several birds with one stone where Georgette's, Georgette's unhappy and she's a hypochondriac. And maybe if she finds love, she'll feel better about herself and she won't have to make up fake illnesses. So she feels bad about herself. Uh, and if he falls in love with her, this will get him out of Gina's hair because he's being a big old creepoid and Gina just wants to get on with her fucking job. <laughs> Gina is one of the nicest characters in this freaking luck, I swear to God. Oh, she gets nothing out of this movie other than being there. Yes. Um, she is also like the broiest bro near the near the climax of the movie. <laughs> When she when she sort of scans Nino to see if he's good enough for Amelie. Uh, uh, fair, fair. Yeah. Um, and then we get to the landlady. So like you say, the landlady had her husband run off with her, uh, with his girlfriend, Panama, leaving her heartbroken. But at the same time, Amelie sees a newspaper article about uh, a mail plane that crashed on Mont Blanc. And suddenly they're delivering all of these pieces of mail that were sent like 30 years ago or something like that. Mm, around about the same time that he died. Huh. So in, again, one of the creepier parts of the story looking now, she sneaks into the landlady's apartment, steals the love letters from her husband, cuts them up, photocopies them, well, photocopies them, then cuts them up to basically construct a new letter, a last letter that says, I love you, I've made a huge mistake, I'm coming home. Yeah, and to, to finally kind of give the landlady closure, right? She's been wallowing in self-pity for 30 years over the husband that left her, and now her knowing that the husband was going to come back somehow makes her feel a little bit better about herself and she can move on with her life. Again, ostensibly stealing somebody's love letters, doesn't matter that you return them or anything like that, is really, really creepy. But you look at Audrey Tattoo and you're like, she's not creepy. She's just helping people. There is there, there is not a single creepy bone in her body doing any of these things. We haven't talked actually much about Audrey Tattoo yet, and this movie made her a goddamn star. Yeah, I mean, that and all the things she said, I mean, she knocked it out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you want to talk about something that just, like, captures someone, both at their most, uh, she's incredibly, incredibly beautiful, uh, in this movie, just like everything in this movie, but she is winsome and chic and pretty and just absolutely perfect. Like you think this could not be anyone else in this role, which is weird because this role was written for somebody else. Who was it written for? It was written for Emily Watson. But what? what? 
I know. Jean-Pierre Genet wrote this role for Emily Watson, but Emily Watson's French wasn't good enough. And really? she was working on Gosford Park at the same time. I know, I know. I that that blows my mind, not in in like skipping over her, but like it's it's a French film by a French director in French. Why would you go to England for your well, lead she, actress? This is something very interesting that I learned about Casino Royale recently. So Eva Green is French, and she's playing yeah. an English woman in Casino Royale, and she very almost didn't get the role because they thought that she would same thing. Her language skills weren't strong enough to convincingly play an English woman. And you look at Casino Royale now, and you're like, of course it's Eva Green. Nobody else could have done that like her. But like, to be to be fair to Eva Green, I think in in the film itself they explained that she's of uh, a mixed heritage, and quite frankly, I would assume that any spy worth their salt would be like well versed in the ways of the world and probably have a bit of a muddled accent already. Yes, but they almost didn't cast her because of her language skills, and. It turns out that that's what actually happened here. And you look at Emily Watson, you go, oh, she's definitely of a type to Audrey Tattoo, but can you picture anyone else in this role? No, no, there's, there's, you would have to genetically engineer the most <laughs> winsome, twee, adorable, non-threatening, uh, uh, sure. She's pure, pure. She's like Snow White or something. Oh, she's better than Snow White. Snow White's all, <laughs> I'm wishing for the one I love. Whereas at least, you know, Amelie is going out and trying to make things happen. Absolutely. Oh, I love Audrey Tattoo so much. It's like, it's like you say, she was genetically engineered. They said, we need an Audrey Hepburn type. And somebody in the 70s said, give me 20 years. so at the same time while she's going through all these adventures setting things up for other people she keeps running into this one guy in train stations Nino (sighs) Quincampois now if you have that was a big sigh from you if you have a tight that is a big burly man you want him to sling you over his shoulder and take you away Nino Quincampois is my type he is a delicately featured vaguely European artsy type he is a manic pixie dream boy and I love him so much He's he's got those very distinct unusual European features but it's never weird if that makes any sense oh yes he is the closest thing to the Dimitri from Don Bluth Anastasia another character who was very formative on me (laughs) He he is a handsome man and correct me if I'm wrong but isn't he also the guy from the fifth element who tries to hold up Bruce Willis in his apartment 
He is also the guy from the Fifth Element who tries to hold up Bruce Willis in his apartment. He is an actor, a director, a writer. Uh, apparently, in France, he's been starring on a TV show as a spy for several years. And, like, oh. this is a age of terror, hard-bitten spy. And I look at Matthew Kessler oh. and I'm like, no, you're just, you're just an adorable little boy. You're not a no. hard-bitten spy. Um, and they, they, they have this sort of connection, but they've never spoken to each other, and they, they don't know quite what the other is about. Um, all she knows is that she keeps seeing him digging around those automatic photo places where you sit on the little stool and it gives you a strip of four pictures. Uh, I don't know what those are. I'm a young Gen Z type, <laughs> and I carry a, a camera with me wherever I go. Yes, absolutely. Um, children, these used to exist. I promise. I promise. They were never as romantic as they are anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> they were always, like, in the middle of a mall or in a bus station. Um. So she keeps running into him, and eventually he drops one of his bags. She picks it up and tries to give it back to him, but he's already gone. And she looks through it, and it's this album of all these pictures that people took in these photo booths and then ripped up and threw it away. And she can't figure out who collects this, why is he collecting it, that sort of thing. And it turns out he's a collector just like her, except he collects, you know, funny laughs and footprints in cement and pictures people take and throw away and both he and Amelie become fixated by this man that they see over and over. This man appears more than anyone else in these photos but never has a, any real expression on his face and always throws them away. So this is this is the big mystery of the movie, right? Like mm -hmm. this is what I was talking about in the magical realism that things happen, weird things happen and that it's up to the main character to try and solve it. And this mystery genuinely got me the first time I saw it, where I was just like, what is this? Who is this? Why is this happening? And I'm so glad that the, the filmmaker put so much time and effort into making it feel like a genuine mystery. Like this is something that needs to be solved. And the payoff at the same time doesn't feel cheap. It's just like, oh, this is the wonder of the mundane world that there is somebody like this who exists. And it's exactly the same way because Amelie discovers the answer first. I'm gonna, I'm gonna not say it because it is a really wonderful reveal in the movie. Amelie discovers the identity of the mystery man first, and then she sets up a situation so that Nino will then, because she's, they're starting to get in touch with each other, because she says, I have your album, I can get back to you, and he says, where can I meet you, and she drops, she uh, tells Gina, what, no, she tells him to come to the cafe where she works. She's too scared to say anything to him. And then she has Gina put a message into his pocket. So they're, they're sort of trading exchanges, like really talking to each other. And she arranges for Nino to discover who the mystery man is and why he appears so often. And when he does, the camera sort of 
flips over 360 degrees and his face begins to glow and swirl in the exact same way that Amelie does. And in this way, you can say at the end, it's a weird movie because Nino and Amelie come together. This is the first time they've ever spoken and it's assumed that they're automatically in love. But it's like a fairy tale. We as the audience know that they have the same things that are important to them and they make each other happy in the same way. But they don't speak at no they point. Do not speak. At no point during this whole film do these two characters really exchange lines with each other. There's there's a, a very brief period where he asks if he if she's the girl in the photo that he's looking at, but she kind of mumbles a no, even though it is her. Um, yeah. The rest of the film, like even once they have fallen in love, um, it's there's no dialogue between them. There's none, no bickering. There's no banter. There's nothing. It's the the whole movie is a two hour meet cute <laughs> where they they a lot of the times they're not meeting or one of them sees the other but the other doesn't see them or that sort of thing. It's Amelie it's so up at one point this sort of um, treasure hunt of you have to answer this ringing phone and then you have to follow the arrows of chalk on the sidewalk and then you have to look through the looking glass and things like that. Um, so they're, they're interacting like that, but they're not actually talking. Mm -hmm. Oh, this reminds me of the scene. She goes to meet him when he works at the fun fair and he's a skeleton on the scary ride. Yeah, this this scene here that that weirds me out. Yes, because this is sort of very much not your thing, and I feel like this is one of the parts where the magical realism really you have to buy into the connection that the story is telling you these two people have, because otherwise it's just a dude creeping on a girl all by herself and breathing down her neck. Yeah, mm -mm, not liking that. Thank you. <laughs> but for Amelie, it's obviously a very sexual experience. And we don't see Nino's face during the whole time. But from the way he is acting, it feels that way to him, too. Um, but it sort of comes out of nowhere. And it's, it's not resolved again. Yeah, like the, the all the scenes in the porn store are far more... Um, charming and winsome than this one scene on the funfair ride. <laughs> and, oh yeah, porn store. That's going to be a bit creepy. No, actually, quite the opposite. Everybody working there seems pretty cool. They're having just the most gentle conversation about crushes while they're price tagging dildos. Like, what did she look like? Did she say anything about me? Did he mention that he had a girlfriend? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so as this, this sort of becomes the through line of the movie, I think you could argue, is this back and forth between Amelie and Nino, them both being kind of scared to reach out and talk to each other while Amelie's having these adventures with other people. Um, I think the creepiest part of this whole movie is when she gaslights the grocer, Monsieur Coligno, to get back at him for the way he treats Lucia. She is gaslight gatekeep girl boss all <laughs> over him. That's the thing. Again, watching it in 2021, 
where gaslight is very much part of our normal vocabulary. And she does things like, for example, she switched around his foot paste and his toothpaste. So he accidentally rubs his teeth with his foot cream and she changes in his, this is another thing that kids won't get nowadays. So in his memory on his phone, where he has his mother's address saved or his mother's phone number saved, she reprograms it to a psychiatric helpline. Um, or things like his slippers being one size too small, all of his bulbs being a much dimmer wattage, that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it's all very low-level annoyance things that she's done to him, as opposed to anything out-and-out out malicious. Well, maybe except for the pin through the electric cord, at which point, I mean, you, you could have burned down his house, girl. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the same thing with the, uh, oh, yes, you are actually going crazy. That feels like a step too far for me. Yeah, yeah. But again, 2001, and she's so quirky and winsome. Exactly. Um, so eventually, sort of the climax of this comes. Uh, Nino comes back to the cafe to speak to Gina. They leave together. She's sort of screening Nino because he doesn't. she doesn't think anyone's good enough for Amelie. Um, Amelie finds out that Nino came back to the cafe and left with Gina, Oh no, it's horrible. She never actually did it. She goes off and she cries in her apartment alone. Oh no. And her, her adorable photographs and her lamp are all worried about her. In the same way, one of the photographs from the book comes to life earlier and talks to a uh, talks to Nino about, oh, she's so beautiful and she put us in her pocket right to her breast and things like that. I think that photograph is a famous person in France. He's a singer, I think. And like to have a photograph of him and have him play all four photographs slightly differently from each other was kind of a big get for the film. Like, oh my God, like it would be, if this was made in the States with Zoe Deschanel and I don't know who's, who's charming and, and winsome, but we can, Oh, this is uh, this is a Joseph Gordon-Levitt. This is basically Five Hundred Days of Summer. Yeah, but without it the turning out that jo yeah, without Joseph Gordon-Levitt turning out to be a not great person, on top of Zoe Deschanel also kind of being a not great person. Yeah. Uh, but then for Joseph Gordon-Levitt to suddenly have a picture of Beyonce and Beyonce talks to him. <laughs> yes. Sorry, just looked it up. His name is. Um, and he was a frequent collaborator with Jean-Pierre Genet. Okay. Mm but again, it's one of those parts, he's in one scene, but he absolutely makes the most of it. You never forget the guy in the photo. No, it's, it's great. Everything is, just all of these scenes have that tinge of, of magic and charm in it without feeling like you're breaking the world watching this no and both amelie and nino react to it in the same sort of way like nino goes oh somebody's talking to me when the photo starts talking to him but he doesn't go oh my god you're a photo why are you talking to me? he just sort of accepts it in a way of the miracles that surround him all the time yeah um and then again in this finale that breaks my heart 
she's gone home. She thinks that she's lost Nino. She's imagining a world where he ran out to run her a little errand because she's out of yeast for the cake she wants to make and comes home and surprises her. And at the same time, the bead curtain behind her starts to move just like she imagined Nino doing. But it's just the cat. It's essentially a horror <laughs> scene. Oh, it's just the cat doing that. But it's it's romantic because you're you're seeing her and you're seeing her thought bubble off to the side, and you're seeing these two shots lining up beautifully. Of oh, we can see from his perspective her in the kitchen, and we can see kind of from her perspective the shot outside of the kitchen, and then they both move the bead curtain at the same time. And while this could be terrifying. It's also just so like, oh my gosh, is it him? Has he brought her the yeast? Is, is all of her dreams coming true? This is so beautiful. And then, yeah, it's Kat. Yes. Um, and it's at, so shortly before this, Nino had arrived at her apartment, tried to talk to her. She was too afraid to open the door. He left her a note saying, I will return. Um, at this point, after her daydream, she goes, no, I have to go back after him. She runs out, opens the door. He's come back. This is the part that just breaks me. And she slowly kisses him in three places. And she demonstrates to him where he... And they just look at each other and, like, they got it. They know that they're in love. It's so, so beautiful. This is the utter... Oh, my gosh. I can't take it. (laughs) (laughs) And... To be fair, the movie has done a lot of work leading up to this. If the rest of the movie didn't work for you, this is going to be the worst part. Yeah, there's there's the logical leap you have to make in a romantic comedy. Uh, and that's with any romantic comedy. But with this one, the movie's done so much work. It's built up so much goodwill of... Look how wholesome and good and wonderful the world is and can be. That these two falling in love is the only natural thing to happen. And then after that, the movie's just sort of over. We see all of these wonderful things that happen again. Like, again, like the glasses dancing on the table. And then the end of the movie is just Nino and Emily on his scooter buzzing around Paris with the her head against him and it's they both look happy they both look calm they both look contented and it's just beautiful with Jan Tiersen who we haven't mentioned Jan Tiersen's gorgeous piano score over it all oh my gosh the 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 music to this film I mean yeah it's got it's got the stereotypical concertina that that I mean we all think of Paris and we naturally think of a concertina sound going along with it because of course we do but in this film it it really makes it work it it doesn't feel like a stereotype when it's so genuine in what it's trying to emote no it it definitely works and I don't want to say, like, I feel sorry for people who can't appreciate the beauty of Amelie or whatever. Um, but I I really do think that it's a shame if, if you don't enjoy this movie because 
there's not much else like it. We've been describing magical realism a lot this episode, but like, if it works for you, it works for you. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And if it doesn't work for you, this movie would be awful. Yeah, I mean, so my, my big personal thing, I know a lot of people see what's happening in the world and, and all the news and we're, there's a lot of shitty things happening, right? Bad mm-hmm. things happening. We see it in the news every single day. But, A, statistically, we are in the most peaceful time of human history. Mm-hmm. Okay, and B, I earnestly believe that there are, are more good people in the world. There's more goodness and good intentions out there than we're led to believe through news because unfortunately good things happening doesn't sell uh, right it's okay we need to know what happened with this horrible person over here and what's happening with this war and what's happening with this disease and yada 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 but you've got to think that this kind of story that Amelie is and all the stories contained within of the man next door who can't leave his apartment and the guy at work who just needs a break and the woman who's hung up on her dead ex-husband and all of these lives, they're our lives. They're everybody. And, and just there's so much good stuff in the world. And Sarah, something you're like you're going this. to make me cry. I, I, I am crying. I'm on the edge of it. And, <laughs> and I, I, am, <laughs> I am crying edging right now. <laughs> <laughs> but a movie like this, th- this is the kind of thing, yes, it's written. Yes, it's scripted. Yes, it's shot in a way that's supposed to evoke emotions. And, and I am being manipulated for two hours. And you know what? I walk into that manipulation and I say, manipulate me. I have to believe, and I do believe that this is the majority of the world, that stuff like this happens, not necessarily, you know, as, as wild and magical and, and wholesome as this all the time. No, of course not. Cause I mean, the movie also partially opens up with Lady Diana's death, <laughs> <laughs> which was a big tragedy, but it's like, so did I tell you about my, my mom and my stepdad's meet cute? No, no, I don't know how they met. Okay. So this is this is a romantic comedy, uh, just the cutest thing. So my mom's driving down the main street in our hometown, Newmarket. And it's a busy part of the day, tons of traffic. And she sees this guy in a car trying to pull out of a parking lot. And he's been there for a while. And of course, the cars just are going by, going by, going by, and nobody's stopping. And so she comes up to it and she stops before the parking lot to let him go. And as he pulls out, he waves and he smiles and she waves and she smiles, you know, as you do. And he goes off and he goes into a parking lot of a, a, another shopping area because apparently he had errands to do. And my mom drove off and thinking like, oh, he was, he was cute. He was handsome. And then went, you know what? No. 
I'm, I'm going to do something about it. So she turns around, she gets off that road, turns around, goes back onto the road, follows into that parking lot. And she drove up and down every single aisle of that parking lot to find his car. And she's pretty sure she found the right car. <laughs> she pulled a receipt or something out of her bag and she wrote this long and meandering note on it being like, hi, you don't know me. I'm the woman who let you out of the parking lot. You smiled. I smiled. I thought, thought you're very handsome. Uh, if you'd like to get a drink or dinner sometime, please call me at this number. However, if you have a wife or a girlfriend, or if your girlfriend's reading this, please disregard everything I've written before this. Because, <laughs> <laughs> and just as my mom is want to do, it goes on far longer than it should. <laughs> And she left it on her, her his windshield, and he called her. And uh, yeah, they've been they've been married for a few years now. They've been dating since. Yeah. Oh gosh, I know, I know. Oh it was it's a real life meet cute, and I'm like, ah, oh, I want that. I want to experience real life whimsy. Be like in, in, in this romantic sense, because my mom experienced real life whimsy and she, he's a wonderful guy. I love him so much. And yeah, yeah. Romance happens. It's out there guys. Don't give up on love. Don't give up on the wonders of life. The universe is full of magic. Oh, I read a thing in a magazine a long, long time ago that was like, you know, this is a movie you should watch if you're in this mood, or this is a movie you should watch if, if you're in this mood. And the one it recommended if, if you're like trying to get over a breakup or something like that. Um, and basically, do you want to believe in love again? Watch The Princess Bride. I disagree with that. I love The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is a perfect movie. Um, but that is a sort of idealized fairy tale world whereas Amelie is very much about the idea all of this is around you all the time you just have to look for it you just have to try for it and yeah I, I love this movie so much <laughs> and and with with the princess bride I'll say that the obstacles that they face are fantastical obstacles to their love whereas the mm -hmm. obstacles Amelie faces are real they are like what if I don't see him at the right time what if I just missed him oh no I don't have the courage to talk to him uh, 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 right like yes. those are real things that happen to people right asking somebody out is one of the hardest things in the world to do sometimes because it's oh just my God, yes. it's not it's not the threat of them saying no, it's the doing it that's the threat. Yes, whenever whenever it's over and you've done it, I tend to feel relieved, like, I got that over with. I'm glad to have done it, but the feeling leading up to it is the worst. Absolutely. Oh. We had a great time today with this film. <laughs> So, I have to say, <laughs> yes. Uh, through this conversation, I understand why you chose this movie now. Mm hmm. Because, go ahead, say it, say it, Bart. Uh, Superman will never. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, it's 
yeah, this movie's camp, but it's it's camp in such a, a magically bold way. It's it's unabashedly camp, right? Because it's it is about love, and it's about all these weird people that we come into contact with, and just lives, lives being messy and strange. I think Amelie is a camp film in that it's two hours of a meet cute and you don't get to go through the highs and lows of love. You just get the highs of love. Oh, so yeah. And talk about like, it's like taking a drug of, um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for when you're in like the first flushes, it's not admiration. It's something else with an A. It's almost like adulation. Um, I don't think Emily is camp. Mm-hmm. But I think in the Venn diagram of what is camp and what is Amelie, there's a lot of crossover. We have artificiality with the heightened colors and the CGI and the romantic music. And we have extreme sentimentality everywhere. This, oh, movie, yes. <laughs> this movie does not wear its emotions on its sleeve. This movie has its emotions in its hands and it's reaching out to you with them. Um, so I don't think Amelie is camp, but okay. I don't think it shares a lot of attributes with camp. Yeah, and if if you guys didn't get it, this is a ringing endorsement of a film from both of us. Oh, yes. Like, it may not oh. be camp for Sarah, but you know what? See it. Have your heart swell three sizes. <laughs> <laughs> Make go see a doctor, please. That feeling at the end of, yes, love is real, and these two characters are experiencing it. If you want that feeling, I can't think of a better way to get it than this movie. Yeah, beautiful, perfect, lovely. Explanation of Amelie. Please subscribe on your podcast of choice. Leave a star rating or review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes, and next week we will be discussing Xanadu. <laughs> Xanadu. Another one in our series of Sam's love for disco queens of the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, man. Uh, what's your history with Xanadu? Quick, brief. Uh, so my history of Xanadu is my mom really loves this movie. She always gives it as an example of, yes, it's cheesy, but it doesn't deserve the rap that people give it. So I watched it, God, if I didn't watch it when I was living with you, it was around that time in my early 20s. I watched it and I was like, you know what? This is a really fun movie. It has disco. It has roller skating. It has Gene Kelly. Xanadu is a lot of things that I love. How about you? I've seen it once. I remember not being too enthused by it that first time I saw it, but I'm wondering if with my maturing as a person, uh, coupled with, I mean, I love ELO who does, I, I'm English. Oh, of course I love ELO. Um, <laughs> and the fact that this maligned musical film was turned into a Tony winning Broadway musical. I have actually seen the musical. 
I saw it in a in a high school production to be fair, but I have seen the musical adaptation <laughs> and it's very fun. Were there roller skates involved in the in the musical? There were okay, I'm gonna spoil a part. At one point the main character goes way over to stage right and he's standing behind something. And he's just wearing shoes at that point. He's standing behind something, they're doing a bit of dialogue. He comes back out, he's wearing roller skates. You never saw him put them on. It's Wait, like how? Magic. What? How? Somebody must have put them on him, is, is how they must have done it. But yes, the reveal of all of a sudden this character is wearing roller skates is sort of the, the entire attitude of Xanadu the musical. It's very fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. I remember a scene involving rotoscoping. Don Bluth, baby! Yeah, so uh, it'll be real great to get into that and just just fall in love with a musical that not enough people have seen because I think it's about time for me to fall properly in love with Xanadu. The joke about Xanadu is that it should be called Xanadont. No, I, I love Xanadu. Xanadu knows what it is. It just happened to come out at the wrong time. Yeah, there's a time and a place for everything, and maybe next week will be the time and place for Xanadu. So you can continue the discussion <laughs> on our Twitter and our Instagram. I am at Reese Indigo, all one word, and spelt the Welsh way. The Welsh way. And I am at Sarah Citrus Lady. You can follow the pod on at Is It Camp Pod. You can also email us at, at Is It or, <laughs> You can also email us at isitcamppod at gmail.com. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp. ta Bye.